everyone, and welcome to Sample Size. The only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron. What is the news thing we will be discussing in this week's episode? Okay. <laughs> all right, that's all I have to work with? That's all you have to work with. It better be fun, and it better have something to do with technology, and maybe Google getting sued for something. <laughs> all right, well, from that, I think you can tell, yes, we're talking about Google. And... Wait, we are? Yes. Oh, it was a shot in the dark. <laughs> You're such a liar. <laughs> you don't tell me any of this stuff before we walk oh, into my the God. studio. <laughs> Which I'm giving as the generous title of our closet. (laughs) All right. Yes, listeners. Today we're going to be talking about the new Google antitrust lawsuit. Yes, it is new by October standards. It's new. It's fairly new. It's two weeks old. Yeah. Come on. Like, I'm not that behind. Yes, that's true. Well, the news is an amorphous thing. What is time? (laughs) All right. Well, do you want me to just start reading? Yes, I would start. like to learn about this thing. I genuinely didn't know we were actually jumping into this. I like how the actual surprise I had comes off as a gag, but I was genuinely surprised. But please, get us started before we lose listeners. All right. Well, on Tuesday, October 20th, the Department of Justice, along with 11 other state attorney generals, filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google to restore competition in online search and search advertising markets. The lawsuit suit claims that Google has unlawfully maintained a monopoly through anti-competitive and exclusionary practices. In less legal speak, that Google has become the number one search engine by shutting out any competition. So let me read you a quote from the suit. Google has entered into a series of exclusionary agreements by requiring that Google be set as the preset default general search engine on billions of mobile devices and computers worldwide and, in many cases, prohibiting pre-installation of a competitor. And the suit then goes into some examples and concludes with, quote, These and other anti-competitive practices harm competition and consumers, reducing the ability of innovative new companies to develop, compete, and discipline Google's behavior. All right. I like how it ended with, like, a grade school punishment. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going dis- to put in a dunce cap. Okay, so I think this is the part where you want me to unpack some of the language used in this whole suit. Please, please, Cameron, as our tech expert. Generous titles. Even our, around. like, legal expert, <laughs> the please. The end of the year, so you don't want me to get a promotion. Or you don't want to give me to give more money, so you give me a promotion in my title. Oh. <laughs> so, All right. As executive tech manager of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so the, the big thing to understand about the Google suit, Google, it is a monopoly on search because it made itself a niche as being a very good search engine. But that's also because of the way search works. It's this crazy thing where the more data you have, the better your search engine is going to work because search engines are literally just built on data. And a big part of the suit isn't just the fact that Google is literally paying Other like phone manufacturers, browser producers, all sorts of individuals who make up the other pieces of how we interact online to make them the default search engine. Mm -hmm. It's also the fact that because of their monopoly on data use and collection, they make it pretty easy to shut other people out because the only way for you to know something exists on the Internet is to find it. And the way Google finds it is by scraping all of the data on the Internet. And it makes it harder for other people to break into that space because the way most data is now shared is through Google. 
I mean, yes, they've kind of shut out competition. And you brought up a little bit of it. Let me just read some examples of what Google has been doing. So like making exclusive agreements that forbid any other search engine from being pre-installed or forcing the search engines in prime locations on phones and making them undeletable. And they also had like a long-term agreement with Apple that made Google the default search engine on the Safari browser. And then also then they use those profits from these tactics to buy preferential treatment for its search engine like elsewhere. Yeah, like that Safari example. Google pays billions to Apple to be the default search engine. The amount of revenue that goes through search is insane. And that actually brings me to another thing I want to talk about in the suit. I don't know if you're going to get to it anytime soon, but the suit is focused on specifically search and search advertising. That is a good point. I I mean, like I mentioned it, but I'm glad you emphasized it. Yeah. So we're going to get in. I'm, I hope we're going to get into... <laughs> More stuff about just the ramifications of antitrust law. But an important thing to understand about search and search advertising is this is a very narrow description. Google is actually monopolistic in a multitude of ways, but the primary tool they have to leverage that monopoly is in search and search advertising. Because first of all, they are acting as the primary information broker for the Internet, which allows them to actually decide what kind of content to show you. Typically, it's nothing malicious. It's just the goal is they want to show you search results that are going to be most meaningful to you. But because of the monopolistic role they take where they are the default search provider, a lot of people will think they're actually getting the same search results for questions they're asking. Like you could literally ask the question, what is a good cupcake recipe? And you might get completely different website recommendations depending on your own personal leanings based on how Google has provided that information. Oh, that makes sense because I know just from having an Android phone, I know that Google's just able to learn certain things about me. Like they're able to show me articles that they think I'm most interested in, probably based on my search history and just what I've searched on Google or Chrome. Yeah, so that makes sense, actually, that when searching for something, they would use that to help me find relevant information. Like if I search for, I don't know, a pizza place near me, it's going to automatically direct me to the area I'm in. It's not going to put me, I don't know, it's not going to guess on that. Yeah, I know Sam's going to plug something later about stuff I've done on the same topic, but the things I want to drive home right now are this idea of filter bubbles, basically this feedback loop that social media causes where because social media companies and amazingly also search engines want you to engage with their platform more, they will show you the content they think you're the most likely to engage with. And search is literally you asking a question and hoping to get something that you will want to engage with back. So as a result, Google, much like Facebook or Twitter or any of the other platforms you engage with, is going to do their best to show you the result that you would probably engage with the most. But the problem is it can make it hard for you to know you're not actually getting all the answers. Like there are other search engines out there. And if you ask them the exact same question, the exact same string of text, you will get different results. And that's not even including the specific results that you're being advertised that people have paid to promote to you. So this monopolistic role isn't just problematic in that it shuts other people out of the marketplace. It can also force people into a feedback loop that they really do not understand they're getting into like they might with social media platforms nowadays. Yeah, that's crazy. I can see that if Google 
has complete control over what is searched on the internet, then they also have control of what other people are seeing when you search for things. And then control of the things that are going to be shown when you search for something are the people who are paying to be shown when you search for something. Yeah, and as someone who has researched and worked with this kinds of technologies, I want to emphasize no one at Google, in my humble opinion, is actively trying to be malicious in any way with any of this. The results are completely based on very sophisticated algorithms using things like MapReduce and other machine learning tools that can just sift through a bunch of large data and figure out, based on who you are and the patterns of your search history, what you're most likely to click. So it's it's not trying to screw you over. It's just going off of what it assumes you want. And actually, I think there's a good time to transition to something I wanted to bring up when researching this was what is Google's response to this lawsuit? And like, what are their arguments against it? So let me just go through a couple of things. First, Google said that the DOJ lawsuit is, quote, deeply flawed and that people use Google because they choose to, not because they're forced to or because they can't find alternatives. They also said their practice of paying to be the default browser is no different than the way like other businesses promote their products and compared it to like a cereal brand paying supermarkets to place its boxes on certain shelves. Yeah, and I have very strong opinions about everything you just said. Specifically, first of all, the idea that you can install other search engines. Well, that is true for browsers, but like you pointed out, on your phone, especially Android phones, there's a search bar somewhere on your home screen typically. Yeah. Especially on the flagship phones like Samsung's and Pixels. You'll never guess what you typically can't change about that search bar. It's usually a Google search bar. So even if you did change it in your browser, you're probably not thinking about that when you go to the search bar to type in something. And then the second part of the argument about who they pay and how that's no different than promotion, there's a huge difference in terms of the fact that it's a search engine. So what you're actually doing when you're a search engine is you're trading in information. When I go to the serial brand aisle, I'm paying to have mine like front and center. So the information is because this is front and center, it's a quality brand. But mm -hmm. it doesn't mean I can't see other brands. But the way Google results work, the fact that they have pagination, which means you have to click to the, get to the next page of results, oh. the fact that they are the literal way most people interact with or search for information on the internet means that they have monopolistic control over finding information and interacting with information sources, which means that it's not just that you went to the cereal aisle and noticed that this cereal was front and center. It's that there's a whole bunch of other cereal aisles that you don't feel like walking to. So you're just going to go with whatever's in that first cereal aisle. And in this case, Google isn't a cereal. They are the entire store. I was going to bring up another argument they have is that like there are other search engines out there and they say how consumers can easily switch to other ones like Bing or Yahoo. You just chose the two worst ones. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. I'm just reading from articles. But I think that's a good point because Google's popular for a reason. How much of Google's popularity is because of monopolistic practices or how much of it is because they are just a good search engine that people like to use. I think the key thing here is your preference in search engine. I, I know there are a lot of people who will still die on the hill that Google is big because they are the search engine that everyone wants to use. But as you've laid out, there have been multiple cases where they've made themselves that way. Yeah. And the primary problem here is this is monopolistic practices that are on trial here. 
And regardless of what you think of Google search engine versus other search engines, it's clear they're taking key steps to be the big and ideally only player in the search engine market. Now, it is completely true that's easy to change your search engine in your browser, but I would caveat that with it's actually interesting what your goal with your search is. A lot of people may just want to have the quickest answer, which Google will typically give you because it has a lot of contextual information about maybe your location, what your previous searches are, things like that. Yeah. But if your goal is to preserve your privacy, you do not want a specific company sucking up your data or you want to help plant trees. There are a lot of <laughs> other crazy ways other search engines promote themselves that people do latch onto the idea of. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you could just name them. Are you, are you referring to DuckDuckGo and what, Ecosia? Is yeah. that the other so one? So DuckDuckGo is a privacy-preserving search engine where they give you a lot of interesting tools up front to say, like, your search results are going to be, you can sort them by the specific date. You can sort them by how explicit you want the content of the results, and you can sort them based on regions. So I can specifically look for results. If I'm looking for baking recipes, I can specifically say, I want baking recipes from Germany from only today. Also, they want to be sexy, sexy recipes. <laughs> sexy? I don't think that's a qualifier. No, but it, they, they have an explicitness filter. Oh, so you okay. can choose to have sexier <laughs> recipes presented to you along with the regular ones. And then there's also Ecosia who brands themselves as the eco-friendly one. Ironically, I think they're built on top of Bing, but it's Bing with the business model that all of their ad revenue outside of what it costs to run the search engine is donated to eco-friendly causes for the goal of planting trees. Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. So if you go there and you do anything with their ad results, that money will go to plant trees. All right. So before we move on from the conversation specifically about the lawsuit, I did want to bring up some things. First, that the DOJ has been investigating Google for over a year. So this has been in the works for a while. Second, the 11 state attorneys joining the suit are actually all Republican, which may seem weird at first. But apparently Democrat state attorneys also want to sue Google. But they're working on a state-led bipartisan suit that will cover more issues than just search. And also the thinking is that with more lawsuits, the government could have a stronger bargaining position against Google. And third, that the DOJ is filing this suit on the basis of the Sherman Act. And that act has been used before to sue AT&T and Microsoft. So I thought the rest of this episode could be us discussing what is the Sherman Act and what were the antitrust lawsuits against AT&T and Microsoft and then what could this lawsuit potentially mean for Google? Yeah, I think that's great. So where do you want to start? Let's start with the Sherman Act. Okay. All right. What, what is that? All right. I was curious. Do you actually know what the Sherman Act is? I am familiar with the Sherman Act, but why don't you tell us? <laughs> All right. You can, you can jump in if I say something wrong. So the Sherman Act, or specifically the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, is a federal statute that prohibits activities that restrict commerce and competition in the economy. Specifically, Section 2 of the Sherman Act deals with monopolies and prohibits monopolies or the attempt at making a monopoly. So the reason it's called antitrust is because when this act was taking place, the monopolistic practices were basically handled by trusts. Trusts are entities that can hold and manage a large number of assets. And those were the legal mechanisms by which things like railroads and oil and steel were bundled together to make a monopolistic organization that controlled the steel 
or railways or oil. Okay. So that's why it's called antitrust. It might be called something different in a different country, but Sherman antitrust laws are specific for the United States. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also know that part of the act is that it allows parties that have been hurt by those who violate the Sherman Act to bring suits for treble damages, which I didn't know what treble meant. That is three times the amount of actual damages. Treble as in triple, I guess. Yes. It's a fancy Victorian way of saying triple. I guess so. Just a fun tidbit about the Sherman Act. Yeah. This is actually a weird thing to think about because when you look at the damages, especially when it comes to search, something like this where being big and proving that you have got big because of the quality of your search engine can make it harder not only to say that you did harm to someone else, but to quantify what that harm is. Like even if DuckDuckGo is considered like objectively to be as good as Google search engine, how do you quantify the total damages that Google did to DuckDuckGo? Yeah, how to quantify the damages associated really with anything when it comes to lawsuits fascinates me. Like how do you determine that this person deserves this amount of money? Like I just like it sometimes it just feels like it's just guessing. Yeah, and a lot of times don't don't look into this unless you're really interested because a lot of times you're going to find out it's a bummer. It's a bummer how little people get out of this because oh. they don't look at necessarily like future growth or other elements of how the value of the thing they missed out on could have impacted them down the line. Oh. And with that bummer, do you want to transition talking about the AT&T and Microsoft? Uh, yes. I know more about one than the other, but let's go. <laughs> All right. We're going to start with AT&T because it happened first. So that lawsuit was filed in 1974 and then was settled in 1984. A bit of history about AT&T. The company grew out of the company Alexander Graham Bell founded and it became a monopoly by 1907. And then in 1913, AT&T actually reached agreement with the U.S. to allow other companies to use its long-distance phone network. And they said they wouldn't buy any phone companies without the government's blessing. So basically, AT&T became a legal monopoly in the eyes of the U.S. government. But then later, they got into trouble for some practices like having only Western Union phones connect to the network, which Western Union was owned by AT&T, and making people rent phones from them in order to use the network. So eventually, the U.S. sued, and then in 1984, the case settled where AT&T was allowed to keep its long-distance service and invest in other industries, but had to divest its local service, creating seven regional baby bells. <laughs> That's amazing. There's a few things to unpack there. First of all, harm to consumers is a big thing in antitrust and renting phones. Like, imagine right now if I told you that you had to rent your phone from the company. You'd say, yeah, Cameron, that's called a monthly contract that I paid to T-Mobile until I can get my <laughs> next-gen phone and throw this current one out. I was going to say. But the important thing here is you chose to do that not because you had to, but because you wanted to. In AT&T's case, you had to rent the phone, which meant that, first of all, people are paying money for a thing that lets them then get the service that they're already paying money for. But on top of that, it's preventing anyone from making a better phone. Yeah. A lot of U.S. law when it comes to antitrust is about innovation, and the stifling innovation is an easy way to get in trouble for antitrust. The second, you'll see this in terms of internet service providers. 
no one internet service provider is typically trying to eat the other ones. And they've built this weird cartel around the country because the moment one of them gets too big, this will happen. By internet service providers, does that also include cable providers? Yeah. If you think of what's happening with cable providers, you can look at AT&T's example where they got so big that they had to literally get broken up into seven little bells, <laughs> baby bells. <laughs> it's great, right? Yeah. And Verizon doesn't want that to happen to them. And amazingly, AT&T also doesn't want that to happen <laughs> to them. They've tried to buy, was it Sprint? They tried to buy T-Mobile and then T-Mobile got money out of that, which they used to make their own network bomb. And I'm not going to lie, T-Mobile's network is solid stuff. Where I live, where I need to be, I never have problems. Yeah, I think you're right. I think AT&T tried buying someone and then the U.S. government prevented that. But then someone else was able to buy that someone and the U.S. government did not prevent that. And that's how this works. And I think there was a similar example with like a cable merger. Was it Comcast? And We're not saying anything here for certain. But the point is that everything we're talking about, they're being very careful as companies because of Sherman antitrust laws. All right. Shall we move on to Microsoft? Yes. All right. Now, the Microsoft investigation started in 1992, was filed as a lawsuit in 1997, and then went into effect after settlement in 2001. And the case included several things, which I'm sure Cameron could speak to, but I probably could not. But it was mainly about how Microsoft bundled Internet Explorer with the Windows operating system, shutting out competing web browsers like Netscape. And at first, Microsoft was actually ordered to break up, but then that decision was overturned on appeal. So really, the settlement, at the end of the day, it allowed Microsoft to still bundle Internet Explorer with the Windows operating system, but they could no longer have restrictions on PC makers who distributed Windows. Yeah, so this actually goes back to an even weirder thing. So if renting phones was weird, the physical asset that you needed to access a network this one was, and you can probably think of this with the Google search bar on your home screen, mm -hmm. you couldn't uninstall Internet Explorer in a lot of cases. People would buy Microsoft Windows and then they would have Internet Explorer, which was just the way you connected to the Internet. People didn't fully understand browsers to the point where they kind of just thought Internet Explorer was how you connected to the Internet. That was just how you did it. Yeah. Not realizing that there were other browsers. And it's weird to think now about like all the obnoxious bloatware that every time you get a new phone or laptop or whatever comes pre-installed on it. But there was a time where that didn't happen. You just got the operating system and you might get some basic functionality that the operating system was using itself. But you weren't getting like pre-packaged, go buy Microsoft Office 365 and we'll give you a month free trial and then we will yell at you every five minutes. <laughs> this comes with this anti-malware like. The idea of packaging software and then making it undeletable was brand new and also forcing Netscape out of the marketplace. Netscape had a very good actively used piece of browser software. But because of the way Microsoft was not only selling it, but packaging it meant that this thing that Netscape had to sell was suddenly completely shut out by people giving away something that objectively was not always as good for free. Yeah. There's anyone on the planet who's used Internet Explorer right now as your <laughs> default browser to come at me. I want to know what your troubles are. Well, and a testament to Internet Explorer, I mean, it's going to be dead now. <laughs> like, what, later in 2021? Happening to copy Google Chrome doesn't mean that you've won anything, Microsoft. <laughs> 
But there is a difference here, mainly that a search engine is not a browser. A browser is the fundamental way you connect to the internet. Mm -hmm. So if you want to connect to any website, you have a way of turning a domain name or an IP address into actual server communication, which is what the browser does. A search engine is a specific website or internet resource helping you do searches. So you can think of it more like it's weird to think of Google like this, but Google is really just a website. It's really just a website that's made itself the default website for how you search for things. Oh, yeah. And so in that way, it doesn't have the same problems when it comes to how it is packaged with other things. But when you realize how the search engine is fundamental to the process by which you interact with the Internet, suddenly it becomes very different. I would argue a lot of people do like Google because it has made itself a superior product. It has not presented itself always as a superior product, but a lot of people do think it's a superior product because it is a good search engine, whereas Internet Explorer was never really that good of a browser. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've used Bing before, and whenever I've tried to use it, sometimes it'll just accidentally happen, and then I'm like, oh, but oh, I wanted Google. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting Bing. <laughs> so, like, And that's another annoying thing is whenever you – if you ever tried to ask Cortana or anything – to search for something, it'll take you to Bing, and then you just throw out your whole laptop because how dare you? Yes. I've never used Cortana. I've just heard things. <laughs> All right. So I think at this point we could now transition to what this lawsuit could actually mean for Google. I do want to point out that the reason there's only two examples of antitrust lawsuits in U.S. history is because it's just really difficult for these lawsuits to take effect and hold. And actually, I think this is a great moment to talk about that Democrats versus Republicans bringing those cases. First of all, U.S. law is notorious for setting weird precedents that then impact other precedents down the line. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this is a narrow lawsuit focused on search and search advertising is very intentional because it's very easy to draw a line between Google's specific actions and the specific result of they're the dominant force in search and they're the dominant force because of their place in search, in search advertising. So it's very easy for them to bring those cases and be confident in their position, the, the Republicans bringing these cases, primarily because they need to have it pretty close to locked up. They, they basically need to have a surefire case. Otherwise, this could fail. And if it does fail in any future attempt at antitrust, especially for search, will probably fail on the same grounds. Mm -hmm. Now, like I mentioned before, Google does a lot of weird stuff that is monopolistic. In fact, the EU sued them for basically prioritizing their own searches and search results for companies that they favored over other companies that might have made more sense, either based on the fact that, let's say you wanted to buy a bike. Google was showing you bikes for companies that they favored over the actual bike shop that was probably around the corner from you. Yes, and I'm so glad you brought it up, Cameron, because I was about to bring that up. And actually, the fines from that lawsuit were $2.7 billion over Google Shopping, $5 billion over Android Dominance, and $1.7 billion over Search Ad Brokering. Yeah, and this is the weirdest thing to think about. Google is an international resource. People on all continents use Google, but... The lawsuits are just in the U.S., just in the EU. Think about how many other places you're going to need to go after Google to get them to break this stuff up, which is not a bad thing because EU law, we've seen more restrictive laws like GDPR have done a lot 
to force Google and other companies to reevaluate how they handle things like advertising and data collection that they then decide is easier instead of having to make a piecemeal like it's only going to protect people in the EU to honestly, if we're going to do business around the world, there's a high likelihood EU citizen data is going to get swiped up. So we have to do this everywhere. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, having these cases is really nice for everyone around the world. On the other hand, you're seeing a lot of places where a lot of different laws have to go into effect to force a company to do something. Well, the EU lawsuit, one of the things from it is that it forced Google to allow Android users to pick their preferred search browser and search engine. But obviously that hasn't translated into the U.S. because that's not the thing for Android phones in the U.S. And I did just want to point out that even despite this EU law going into place, Google still had roughly 93 percent share of Europe's search market as of September 2020, according to StatCounter. Yeah. And to the point about the phones, I mean, you can think of region lock phones like EU versus U.S. versus Asia phones. So it's probably easier for them to make those distinctions there. But yeah, I mean, if you think of it at the end of the day, on the one hand, it's where are you going to search for this kind of stuff? It's that you've built that association. A lot of people living right now are probably thinking, yeah, Google's the best because that's just the search engine we've always used. That doesn't always mean Google is the best. Depending on the outcome of this, if Google is really forced to rework how they do search, we may eventually see a bigger, different, potentially better player come into the mix. And that's the thing is like, regardless of what you think of Google search or not, that's good or not, it's hard to tell if anyone else could have been better because of what they've done. Wow, that is such a great point. I had a wrap up, but that may be a great wrap up. I'd actually like to plug something of my own now if we're wrapping up. Before you do that, I did want to point out these lawsuits, you know, it's just the start of a lengthy battle that could take years and especially if anyone appeals. So there will not be an immediate effect, but we will keep everyone posted and Google has to respond to the suit by December 19th. So we'll keep you updated on any new developments to this story. And the thing I was going to plug. You may not know this about me. I, Wildcard Cameron, have my own YouTube channel called Wildcard Cameron, where I like to talk about technology in the news, in movies, in media, wherever. And I just did a video about this antitrust lawsuit, but most of my focus was on the fact that you can change your search engine fairly easily. And to give a little more context on the dangers of only relying on one search engine. So we're going to put a link to that YouTube video in the show notes. It's I realize the irony that I'm sending you to a YouTube video where YouTube (laughs) is owned by Google. Yes. It's a very simple video. It'll show you it's like three or four steps how to on your phone and on your computer change your search engine. So you can spend a little time seeing what's like to do searches on a different platform and spend a little more time thinking about, do I really want to do all my searches on Google? Do I want to have opportunities where certain questions I can ask to other search engines? I'm just trying to give you that choice. Yeah. And this video is great. He even puts in time codes for you to jump to like, oh, specifically, I want to change this on a phone or on this browser, on this browser. It's great. Very simple instructions that I'm sure not everyone knows. Like if you played around for 20 minutes, maybe, but you'll figure it out instantly. Yeah. And those time codes are important because I can't tell you how many times I go to videos where I try to solve a tech problem. I have to sit through like the whole history of the silicon chip before (laughs) I find out how to change the like freaking IP address on something. But yes, if you enjoyed this episode and we know you have because you listened this far, 
please subscribe. Share it with every human being you know and even ones you don't. Run around in the streets and grab people and say, listen to Sample Size. <laughs> and please let us know what you think of the show on social media or better yet, leave us a review on iTunes. That always helps other people find the show. Yes, exactly. If you want to find out more about what we talked about today, everything we've talked about is going to be in the show notes. Thank you to Scott, as always, for editing, <laughs> making us sound great. Scott, you you are the rock that makes this show fly. Yes, you can find his information in the show notes. And just before we go, remember, your time is important and your interactions with the Internet are important. So take the time to learn a little more about how you interact with the Internet and the different ways you can do it. And you can always rely on us to do that. I'm Cameron. And I'm Sam. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> All right. See you, everyone. Bye.